Welcome ZooAssemblyers! My name is Zuka Zalishvili and I'm the founder of ZooAssembly. ZooAssembly is an online podcast for the highest yield basic science and clinical knowledge tested on USMLE Step 1 and USMLE Step 2 CK. The information discussed in this podcast is intended only for educational purposes. It's not intended to prevent, diagnose, or to treat the medical conditions in real clinical practice, nor is it intended to reflect the policy and the guidelines of various health institutions. Simply put, we serve you to butcher your step exams. Please subscribe to our podcast, Facebook, Instagram pages, and the YouTube channels down below in the description of this episode so that we keep you tuned for the news at ZooSMLE. Now, let's start rolling. Today we are continuing our pediatrics series, and the first disease that we are going to discuss today is perinatal hepatitis B virus infection. Before we go down to that route and discuss the perinatal hep B infection, let me ask you a question. Guys, could you please remind me all the transmission modes of the hep B virus? I hope you're saying that hep B virus is transmitted perinatally, and this is what we are going to discuss in the next few minutes. It's also transmitted via sexual intercourse. And finally, hep B can be transmitted by blood. It can be blood transfusions, but that's really rare because blood banks usually screen blood for hep B because they transfuse blood to the patient. And uh, intravenous drug users are also at risk for contracting the hep B by using the used needles. Okay, now let's move on to the perinatal hep B infection. It's very important to know that if neonate is infected, sorry, if neonate is exposed to hep B during birth and he or she is not getting prophylaxis, then there is approximately 90%, risk of vertical transmission of the hep B from the mother to the neonate. In contrast, if the neonate gets prophylaxis that we are going to discuss in a few minutes, then the transmission risk drops down to less than 2%. It's a very dramatic drop in the vertical transmission risk. It's also high yield to remember that out of all infants who are infected with hep B, during time of birth, 90% will develop chronic infection. The idea here is that the neonates have weak immune system, specifically the cellular immunity. Therefore, they cannot resist the hep B and they cannot eliminate hep B from the body for most of the times. This is why if the infant gets hep B during birth, or even transplacentally, there's a very high chance of hep B developing into a chronic infection. Let's discuss what the risk factors are for the hep B infection perinatally. First, if the mother has high viral load, the baby is at risk for getting hep B at birth. Okay, here's a question for you. Could you please tell me what the viral load is? I really hope that you're saying that viral load is the viral nucleic acid concentration in the blood. And if mother has high viral load, it means that there is active replication of hep B in the mother, and therefore there's a high risk of hep B transmission at birth. Another risk factor for perinatal hep B transmission is positivity of the mother for HB-EAG antigen. It's the E antigen of the hep B virus. And if we recall from our step one knowledge, 
HPE antigen reflects active replication of the virus in the hepatocytes. And HPE antigen is therefore the marker of high transmissibility. We already mentioned that the infants most commonly get the hep B infection from their mom at birth because they are exposed to maternal genital secretions during the vaginal delivery. Although transplacental hep B transmission is possible, it's very rare, at least rarer than perinatal transmission at birth. Also, I'd like to tell you that hep B is not transmitted by breastfeeding. Therefore, mother who has chronic or even acute hep B infection can breastfeed her infant without the fear of giving hep B to the neonate. Okay, and then we have come to the point when we would like to say the prophylaxis to prevent hep B infection in the neonate. As we know, all neonates, regardless of the maternal hep B status, get HPV vaccine at birth. So there are two doses of HPV vaccine, and the first dose is given immediately after birth in the nursery. The difference between infants... Um, I mean, so the idea here is that if the infant is born to hep B positive mother, then that infant should receive not only HPV vaccine, but also HBIG. HBIG is hepatitis B immune globulin. Hepatitis B immune globulin will cause neutralization of the hep B virus. In other words, HBIG will block adhesion of hep B to the, viral, uh, to the uh, cell surfaces and it will block perinatal hep B transmission. So to summarize, if the mother, pregnant mom, has hep B, then her infant should receive HPV vaccine just like all the other infants and hep B immune globulin. And that was discussion about the perinatal hep B transmission. Now we'll talk about the persistent pulmonary hypertension of the newborn which is shortly abbreviated as PPHN. As the name implies, persistent pulmonary hypertension of the newborn is when pulmonary vascular resistance is persistently high even at birth, even after birth. Let's remind ourselves that when the baby is born and when the baby takes the first breath, oxygenation will cause pulmonary vasodilation and drop in the pulmonary vascular resistance. This will gradually cause the closure of the ductus arteriosus and transition from the fetal circulation to the postnatal circulation. In case of persistent pulmonary hypertension of the newborn, pulmonary vascular resistance stays high even after birth. And it has a very important hemodynamic consequence for the baby. If resistance, and therefore the pressure, is very high in the pulmonary vasculature, it means that the blood from the pulmonary trunk will go through the ductus arteriosus into the descending aorta. In other words, Ductus arteriosus becomes the right to left shunt in case of PPHN. This is because blood from the pulmonary trunk goes to the descending aorta through the ductus arteriosus. And that's because blood cannot go to the pulmonary arteries and because the pressure is very, very high. There are several risk factors for PPHN. But here's one general rule of thumb that I would like to tell you. Any fetal condition that can cause hypoxia and hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction can potentially induce PPHN. Let's take lung hypoplasia. Let's suppose that the newborn was born with 
congenital diaphragmatic hernia. We know that congenital diaphragmatic hernia restricts the development of the lung, and patients with congenital diaphragmatic hernia usually have pulmonary hypoplasia. And that usually happens on the left side because the right lung is protected by the liver below that lung. When the patient has pulmonary hypoplasia, this will result in hypoxia. And let's recall that hypoxia causes vasoconstriction in the pulmonary vasculature. Vasoconstriction of the pulmonary vessels will increase the pulmonary pressure and will result in persistent pulmonary hypertension of the newborn. On the other hand, if the newborn is experiencing the meconium aspiration syndrome, that can also result in PPHN. The idea here is that if the baby aspirates meconium, which is baby stool, then the newborn gets chemical pneumonitis, meaning there is inflammation of the lung tissue and leukocyte infiltration and thickening of the diffusion membranes in case of the meconium aspiration syndrome will cause decreased oxygen diffusion across the diffusion membrane. This will result in hypoxia again, and hypoxia will induce hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction causing PPHN. Another risk factor for PPHN is neonatal infection, specifically neonatal pneumonia. As a side note, could you please tell me which three microbes are the most common causes of almost all infections in the neonates? That's right. It's group B streptococcus, E. coli, and Listeria monocytogenes. Let's say that the newborn develops pneumonia due to any of these agents. Pneumonia can cause infiltration of the lung tissue, and therefore it can also cause thickening of the diffusion barrier. Thickening of the diffusion membrane will also cause hypoxia and hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction, causing PPHN. Let's now move on to the physical exam findings. We already mentioned that PPHN is characterized by right to left shunt across the ductus arteriosus. This will result in lower post-ductal oxygen saturation compared to pre-ductal oxygen saturation. I have a question for you guys. Zeus Emiliers, could you tell me why right-to-left shunting across the ductus arteriosus results in low post-ductal saturation? Are you saying that blood in the pulmonary trunk is deoxygenated and therefore this is the blood that goes to the descending aorta? If you are, that's totally correct. Deoxygenated blood from the pulmonary trunk crosses the ductus arteriosus and goes into the descending aorta and therefore if we check post-ductal oxygen saturation in one of the extremities, we will see low oxygen saturation. But the preductal oxygen saturation will be normal because deoxygenated blood joins aorta only at the point of aortic isthmus, not before, which means that the upper extremities will have normal oxygen saturation. Okay, we have discussed the logic behind difference between the postductal and preductal saturations. An important thing in case of PPHN is that lower extremity pulses will be normal. The reason I'm stressing this point is that PPHN, I mean the physical exam findings in PPHN are commonly compared and contrasted to physical exam findings of aortic coarctation. 
let's recall that aortic correctation is characterized by aortic narrowing either immediately before the ductus arteriosus or immediately after ductus arteriosus. Aortic correctation, which is before the ductus arteriosus, also creates the right to left shunt across the ductus arteriosus, and this will cause low postductal oxygen saturation compared to normal preductal oxygen saturation. However, aortic correctation, in contrast to PPHN, will also be accompanied by low by weak lower extremity pulses. And this is because aortic narrowing restricts the blood flow to the abdominal aorta and to the lower extremities. And if blood flow is weak, then the pulses will be weak. In case of PPHN, there is no mechanical obstruction along the aorta. Therefore, lower extremity pulses will be normal in intensity. But still, lower extremities will have the lower oxygen saturation compared to the upper extremities. Other physical exam findings include respiratory distress and cyanosis because constricted pulmonary vessels cannot take up enough oxygen, and the babies with PPHN suffer from hypoxia. At the same time, cardiac auscultation will reveal prominent S2 sound. Could you please tell me the reason why PPHN causes prominent S2 heart sound? I hope you're saying that S2 heart sound is prominent in PPHN because there is back pressure and back flow of blood in the pulmonary trunk. I wouldn't say back flow, I'm sorry for this, but there is back pressure of blood. The idea here is that since blood cannot go freely into the pulmonary capillaries, then the pressure builds up in the pulmonary trunk and that excessive pressure slams the pulmonic valve at the end of systole. This is what, what creates the prominent S2 sound. And finally, let's talk about how we treat the PPHN. As we already mentioned, these newborns suffer from hypoxia and resultant cyanosis. Therefore, we need to supplement oxygen and we might also need mechanical ventilation if hypoxia is very severe. Additionally, we can administer inhaled nitric oxide. Now, here's a question for you guys. Could you tell me why we would give inhaled nitric oxide to the newborn with PPHN? Are you saying that nitric oxide is the vasodilator, so it vasodilates pulmonary vessels? If you are, that's totally right. Nitric oxide dilates pulmonary vessels just like it dilates any other vasculature in the body. And this is the rationale behind why we use inhaled nitric oxide in PPHN. And this was discussion about the PPHN. Let's discuss the primary nocturnal enuresis. In the previous pediatrics episodes, we have compared and contrasted the primary versus secondary nocturnal enuresis. But right now, we are going to discuss specifically the primary nocturnal enuresis. Before we talk about what primary he means here, let's define enuresis. So enuresis is involuntary loss of urine at night while the patient is unconscious. And up to some point in the human development, bedwetting is normal. This is why we should also know the criteria to diagnose the enuresis. And the easy way that I always remember and recall the diagnostic criteria for enuresis is 2, 3, 5. So 2 plus 3 is 5. And let me explain what I mean here. In order for the patient to be diagnosed with enuresis, 
The patient should have at least two episodes of bedwetting per week, lasting for at least three months, and this patient should be at least five years old. If the patient doesn't meet any of these criteria, then she or he cannot be diagnosed with aneurysis. Okay, now that we have talked about the definition of the aneurysis itself, let's talk about what the primary nocturnal aneurysis means. Primary aneurysis means that the patient has never been consistently dry for more than six months. In other words, there hasn't been the period of six months in which the child has been dry. There has not been such period in the child's life. And there are several mechanisms which could explain the primary nocturnal aneurysis. The most likely cause of primary aneurysis is delayed maturation of the bladder control. And it's usually familial. Children suffering from primary nocturnal aneurysis are commonly accompanied by parents who also report that they also had similar problems at the age of their children. And this can definitely be familial, but at the same time, primary aneurysis can be caused by increased nocturnal urine output. And increased nocturnal urine output can be caused by many different factors. For example, increase in the evening fluid intake. It might be caused by decreased ADH for any reason. And at the same time, if the child has a very small bladder capacity, that can also cause primary aneurysis. Bladder capacity is the amount of urine that the bladder can hold within itself. So if the bladder can hold only a small amount of urine, then the child will wet the bed at night when the urine accumulates in the bladder. As we already mentioned, family history is a very strong risk factor for the primary aneurysis. And surprisingly, primary aneurysis most commonly affects boys from the age of 5 to 8. Now, how do we evaluate the primary aneurysis? Well, first, we need to perform the urinalysis. The idea here is that whenever the child has aneurysis, we should exclude the serious causes of bedwetting, including UTI. This is why we are doing the urinalysis. And also, we should perform we should ask the parents to keep the voiding diary for the child. In other words, we should know how many times per day the child voids and how much the child voids. And we should also know the amount of evening fluids that the child gets. And finally, how do we manage the primary aneurysis? Well, first we need to treat any comorbid conditions which could exacerbate aneurysis. Let's recall that constipation is a common cause of aneurysis. It's not a cause, but it, it predisposes the child to aneurysis. And therefore, if the child with primary aneurysis also experiences constipation, we could increase the dietary fiber intake and we can increase the morning fluid intake. We would also prescribe the osmotic laxatives as well. For the aneurysis itself, first we will try behavioral modification. And in behavioral modification, I specifically mean restriction of the evening fluids and also star chart therapy. This is when we hang the star uh, deck on the next to the patient's bed. And for every dry night, we give one star to the patient. So this is the principle of the positive reinforcement that I have talked about in the previous episode of the pediatrics. If the behavioral modifications don't help, then we could use aneurysis alarm. Aneurysis alarm is the alarm that's placed under the bed, under the bed sheet, and once the child starts to wet the bed, 
the alarm rings and the child, child wakes up and she or he goes to the bathroom. Finally, if behavioral modifications and aneurysis alarm don't help, then we could use desmopressin. Could you please tell me what drug desmopressin is? That's right, desmopressin, sounding like vasopressin, is the vasopressin analog. Vasopressin itself is the ADH. So desmopressin is the ADH analog, which reabsorbs the free water in the collecting tubule and therefore it decreases urine production at night. This is how desmopressin helps in aneurysis. If desmopressin doesn't help, then the last resort medication that we could use is imipramine. Do you remember which class of medications imipramine belongs to? That's right. That's right. It's a TCA. Even more, imipramine is a tertiary TCA, which means that it has very strong anti-muscarinic properties. And if we recall from the step one knowledge, blocking the M3 muscarinic receptors on the detrusor muscle of the bladder will cause urinary retention or relaxation of the detrusor muscle. This is how we will prevent bedwetting in children who are resistant to all the other therapies that we've talked before. Okay, this was discussion about the primary nocturnal aneurysis. Let's now discuss the Rett syndrome. Rett syndrome is the neurodevelopmental disorder more common in girls, and it usually presents between the 6 and 18 months of age. Rett syndrome is characterized by initial normal development, which is then followed by regression in the different domains of the child's development. What I mean here is that the child with Rett syndrome will start to develop normally. He or she will start to walk normally, talk normally, and then between the ages of 6 and 18 months, there will be loss of speech, gradual loss of purposeful movements, there might also be the gait abnormalities and finally stereotypical hand movements. Stereotypical hand movements are very high yield because they are characteristic of Red syndrome. Don't get me wrong, stereotypical hand movements are not specific for the Red syndrome. However, in the board questions, if the question mentions hand ringing, this is almost pathognomonic for the Red syndrome. Again, that's not true in the real life. I mean, hand wringing is not necessarily seen in Red Syndrome, but still, the questions love to mention hand wringing in the context of the Red Syndrome. There are several other features which favor the diagnosis of Red Syndrome. Patients with Red Syndrome have head growth deceleration. In other words, they have small heads compared to their age, compared to what's normal for their age. They might also present with seizures and importantly with breathing difficulties. Children with Red syndrome commonly are commonly affected by the sleep disturbances and they might also have the autistic features. And this last point is very high yield because very commonly, the board questions try to compare and contrast the Red Syndrome versus Autism Spectrum Disorder. Let's do this right now. As we already mentioned, Red Syndrome is more common in girls. In contrast, the Autism Spectrum Disorder is more common in boys. Additionally, the Red Syndrome, as we mentioned, has head growth deceleration. In other words, they have microcephaly. And this is in absolute contrast to the patients with autism spectrum disorder. They usually have macrocephaly, or the large head, compared to what's normal for their age. And again, 
autism spectrum disorder children might also have stereotypical hand movements. So please don't rely only on the stereotypical hand movements while differentiating Rett syndrome from the autism spectrum disorder. And the final point that I'd like to tell you about the Rett syndrome is the genetic background and the mechanism for Rett syndrome. Rett syndrome is usually caused by sporadic mutation. In other words, it's usually not inherited. It's caused by de novo mutation of AMECP2 gene. And the reason Rett syndrome is, um, is more common in females is that Rett syndrome with accompanying mutation is almost 100% lethal in the male fetuses. That's why they, they are not usually born alive. Okay, so this was discussion about the Rett syndrome. Now we'll talk about the Rye syndrome. Rye syndrome is pediatric hepatic encephalopathy. And it's usually caused by children being administered aspirin during viral infections specifically influenza or varicella zoster virus infection. The idea here is that aspirin metabolites inhibit the fatty acid oxidation in the hepatocellular, I mean in, in the mitochondria of the hepatocytes, and this causes liver toxicity. So patients with Rye syndrome develop acute liver failure with all the signs and symptoms of acute liver failure. First, they develop encephalopathy with asterixis, also known as the flapping tremor. Could you please tell me why patients with Rye syndrome can have encephalopathy and the asterixis? I hope you're telling me that acute liver failure, as well as chronic liver failure, causes accumulation of ammonia. This is because normally ammonia is converted to harmless urea in the liver via urea cycle. If liver is not working, then urea cycle isn't working. And this is why ammonia will accumulate and it will interfere with the glutamate, glutamine, neurotransmitter cycle in the brain. This will cause the flipping tremor also known as the asterixis. Additionally, the patients with Rye syndrome will have severely, severely elevated liver enzymes. I mean, AST and ALT. They might be in the thousands because that's acute liver failure caused by acute aspirin toxicity. Guys, could you please tell me what will happen to PTINR and PTT? I can almost hear you saying that both of these values will increase. The reason both PTINR and PTT will increase is that almost all coagulation factors, except for factor 8, are synthesized in the liver. Factor 8 is synthesized in the endothelial cells together with the von Willebrand's factor. And this is why PTINR and PTT will increase in acute liver failure. And finally, Rye syndrome is treated supportively. There is no specific antidote or treatment which reverses the Rye syndrome. And the Rye syndrome is the reason why, for why we avoid aspirin use in children, especially when we suspect viral infection. Okay, here comes a very important point. Guys, could you please tell me the disease in which we give children aspirin. That's amazing. It's truly Kawasaki disease, also known as mucocutaneous lymph node syndrome. In Kawasaki disease, children have high risk of coronary artery thrombosis or the aneurysms. And aspirin, which is an antiplatelet, will inhibit coronary artery thrombosis. This is why we would rather give the aspirin to the children with Kawasaki disease, but not to the children with suspected viral infections. So this was discussion about the Rye syndrome.
Let's discuss the routine adolescent screening. Before we talk about the different conditions that need to be screened in adolescents, let's first mention the fact that routine adolescent screening should preferably be done annually, that is, every year. First of all, we should screen the adolescents for their mental health, because teenagers are at risk for the emotional turmoils and they, they might be oversensitive to the different issues. This is why we should definitely screen them for depression with the validated depression questionnaire. At the same time, people can start and uh, most people start sexual life at the teenage years. So we should definitely have the conversation about the sexual health with the teenagers. But this conversation should be absolutely confidential in order to establish rapport with the adolescent because otherwise the adolescent will not open up about his or her sex life if he or she knows that you will talk to their parents. At the same time, if the patient is sexually active and if this patient is a female, then we can offer gonorrhea and chlamydia testing. Gonorrhea and chlamydia testing occurs in women at less than 25 years of age. And we can also offer HIV testing once before the age of 18. Apart from the mental health and sexual health, another very important topic for the adolescent screening is the substance abuse. This is because most teenagers try to experiment with the different drugs and while most of them do not develop substance use disorder, some of them still might. Therefore, we should screen the possibility of substance use disorder. But again, this discussion about the type of drug use, type of the drug used, and uh, the route of administration, so discussion about every single topic of the substance abuse should be confidential as well. The adolescents between 17 and 21 years old should be screened for dyslipidemia once. And this screen for dyslipidemia definitely happens with the lipid panel, right? Finally, adolescents should be screened for safety. Unfortunately, it's common for the adolescents to be bullied at school or at colleges in other um, institutional settings. Therefore, we should definitely ask about bullying and we should also check the seatbelt and helmet use because the use of seatbelts and helmets decrease the risk of the life-threatening injuries. So this was the routine adolescent screening. Let's talk about the routine newborn care right now. First, all the newborns after birth should receive intramuscular vitamin K injection. I have a question for you guys. Could you please tell me the reason why the newborns should receive intramuscular vitamin K? I really hope that you're saying that Without intramuscular vitamin K, newborns are at high risk for developing the hemorrhagic disease of the newborn. The idea here is that newborn's GI tract is not colonized with the sufficient amount of bacteria. And if we recall from our step one knowledge, vitamin K, the major source of vitamin K is the gut microbiome. In other words, Bacteria living in the GI tract synthesize most of the vitamin K in the body store. And since newborns don't have these beneficial bacteria in their guts, that's why we need to give intramuscular vitamin K. Vitamin K will help in production of the factors 2, 7, 9, 10, protein C, and protein S. Okay, the other preventive measure that should be 
applied to all the newborns is the erythromycin eye ointment. Zuas Emiliers, can you remind me why we apply erythromycin eye ointment to all the newborns? That's right, we are trying to prevent ophthalmia neonatorum, which is the neonatal conjunctivitis by Neisseria gonorrhea. The reason we are afraid of Neisseria gonorrhea conjunctivitis is that it can result in permanent blindness. It is the most serious and the most severe cause of neonatal conjunctivitis. It's very high yield to remember that erythromycin eye ointment does not prevent chlamydia conjunctivitis. So even if the new so even if the newborn gets erythromycin eye ointment, she or he may still re, uh, still get the chlamydia conjunctivitis. And finally, what we are going to say right now, we have already discussed in this episode. Every newborn, regardless of the maternal Hep B status should receive hepatitis B vaccine. After these routine preventive measures, the newborn should be screened for several diseases. First, the newborns are usually screened for different metabolic and genetic disorders by the heel prick. We draw small amount of blood by the heel prick and then we test the newborn's blood for these genetic and metabolic disorders. The different countries have different panel of the metabolic and genetic disorders that they screen for. Therefore, it's not worth memorizing which diseases are screened in which country. However, there are some diseases which are screened in almost all countries. Such diseases include cystic fibrosis, which is the most common lethal disease in the Caucasians. Such disease is the phenylketonuria as well. Yeah. The other uh, test that we order for the newborns is the serum bilirubin. Because we need to screen the newborn for the hyperbilirubinemia. This is because untreated indirect hyperbilirubinemia can result in carnicterus that is deposition of indirect bilirubin in the brain, specifically in the basal ganglia and the brainstem nuclei. Hearing should also be checked in the newborns because if the patient has latent hearing loss without the parents knowing about this, then there might be delayed development of the social and cognitive skills of the, of the child. The idea here is that if the child doesn't hear what she or he is told, then there will be delay in speech development and also cognitive development as well. We should also check the pre and post ductal pulse oximetry to exclude conditions like persistent pulmonary hypertension of the newborn or coarctation of aorta. And then some newborns should also be screened for the serum glucose. Could you please tell me which infants should be screened for serum glucose? I hope you're telling me that these are the infants of the diabetic mothers. The idea here is that infants of diabetic mothers commonly have hypoglycemia immediately after birth. Maternal hyperglycemia before birth causes fetal hyperinsulinemia and then excessive insulin after birth rapidly drops the blood glucose which can manifest as decreased consciousness, jitteriness, seizures, vomiting, and etc. Okay, this was the routine newborn care. And now I'd like to discuss the Salter-Harris fractures with you. Salter-Harris fractures are the fractures in the pediatric population which involve growth plate. There are five different types of Salter-Harris fractures and since all of them involve the growth plate, 
they are associated with the risk of limb length discrepancy. In other words, if the child has Salter Harris fracture, then the leg or the hand with the Salter Harris fracture might end up shorter than the unaffected extremity. So this is why we need to identify the Salter Harris fracture and to treat the Salter Harris fracture with surgery. Type 1 Salter Harris fracture is the fracture across the growth plate. In other words, this fracture involves only the growth plate. It does not involve epiphysis or metaphysis. And before we go any further, let's take a step back and remember what epiphysis and metaphysis and diaphysis are. Epiphysis, metaphysis, and diaphysis are the different parts of the long bones. And the hallmark structure which differentiates these three segments are the growth plates. The bone segment immediately above the growth plate is epiphysis. This is why it's called epi. Epi means on top. Metaphysis is the bone segment immediately below the growth plate. And then diaphysis is the bone shaft. It's this long segment of the bone which connects epiphysis and metaphysis on two sides proximally and distally. Okay, now let's move on to the type 2 Salter-Harris fracture. Type 2 Salter-Harris fracture involves the growth plate and metaphysis. Okay, type 3 Salter-Harris fracture also involves two structures, but in this case, these two structures are the growth plate and epiphysis rather than metaphysis. Type 4 Salter-Harris fracture involves all three structures, which is epiphysis, growth plate, and metaphysis. And finally, we have the type 5 Salter-Harris fracture, which is very similar to the type 1 Salter-Harris fracture. It's similar in a sense that the fracture involves only the growth plate. But the difference between type 1 and type 5 Salter-Harris fractures is that type 5 Salter-Harris fracture is compressive, compressive fracture. So there is this compressive downward force on the growth plate which causes fracture at the level of the growth plate. In case of type 1 Salter-Harris fracture, there is no such compression force which exerts the downward pressure on the growth plate. So this was our discussion about the Salter-Harris fractures. Now we'll talk about the scarlet fever. First, before we talk about the clinical presentation of scarlet fever, let me ask you a question. Do you guys remember from the step one the causative agent of scarlet fever? Come on, I know you do. It is Streptococcus pyogenes, which is group A Streptococcus, right? Strep pyogenes can cause the scarlet fever due to its erythrogenic exotoxin A. And clinical features of scarlet fever are very similar to those of Kawasaki disease. The patients with scarlet fever also have fever and pharyngitis. In scarlet fever, we have very pronounced tonsillar erythema and tonsillar exudates. Additionally, the patients with scarlet fever, just like those with Kawasaki disease, experience the strawberry tongue. Strawberry tongue is this swollen tongue with rough texture that looks like the strawberry. And the mechanism of why the tongue has this rough pointy texture is that there is papillary hyperplasia on the tongue. If you remember from the histology, the tongue is covered by the different types of lingual papillae, and the hyperplasia of those papillae will result in the small uh, pinpoint, um, pinpoint elevations on the tongue. The patients with scarlet fever also have 
tender anterior cervical lymphadenopathy, and it's usually unilateral cervical lymphadenopathy. That's actually a very high yield point. When the patient presents with cervical lymphadenopathy, then we should ask if the lymphadenopathy is unilateral or bilateral. The reason for this is that unilateral cervical lymphadenopathy is most commonly caused by bacterial infections, while bilateral cervical lymphadenopathy is most commonly caused by viral infections. Please don't get me wrong. Either unilateral or bilateral lymphadenopathy can be caused by conditions other than infection. It might be lymphoma or leukemia. But when we talk about infections, then laterality of the cervical lymphadenopathy can suggest bacterial versus viral infections. A very characteristic sign of scarlet fever is something called the sandpaper rash. Sandpaper rash is this maculopapular rash which has a very rough skin texture. When you touch the skin of the patient with sandpaper rash, you will feel this rough texture and it feels, really feels like the sandpaper. And finally, the sandpaper rash undergoes desquamation and peeling on the hands and feet during the resolution stage of the scarlet fever. This is another clinical feature by which scarlet fever is very similar to Kawasaki disease. Now, how do we diagnose scarlet fever? Well, we need to do the rapid strep antigen test. This is when we take the swab, the uh, swab from the throat, and then we test the oropharyngeal swab for the rapid, for the streptococcal antigen. If rapid strep test is positive, that confirms infection with the group A strep and we can start treatment. If rapid strep test is negative, but the suspicion is still high, then we can perform throat culture. And throat culture is more sensitive than the rapid strep test. And if throat culture comes back positive, we'll also start treatment. The treatment of most of the group A strep infections, including that of scarlet fever, is with penicillin. And preferred penicillin in case of scarlet fever is amoxicillin. However, you could use any penicillin here as well. Okay, this was the scarlet fever. Let's move on to septic arthritis in infants. Septic arthritis is the infection of the joint. And in infants, the most common causes of septic arthritis include Staph aureus, Group B strep, and gram-negative rots. As you probably already noticed, the most common cause of septic arthritis in all age groups is Staph aureus. Now, septic arthritis is a very serious condition. It's, it's very acute and very severe in terms of presentation. The patient usually has high fever, and since we are talking about the infants, the infant may also have the nonspecific symptoms like fuzziness, there might be poor feeding, and then there will be some signs which suggest the infection of the joint. First, the infant will try not to move the affected joint. At the same time, there will be excessive irritability when we move the joint. For example, if the infant has septic arthritis of the hip joint and we are changing the diaper, that will cause extreme pain and the infant will start crying while we change the diapers. At the same time, septic arthritis will result in asymmetric swelling. In other words, the joint, which is affected by septic arthritis, will be more swollen and red and painful compared to the other joint at the same level. Septic arthritis is usually characterized by leukocytosis and elevated ESR and CRP. Septic arthritis is bacterial infection, so inflammatory markers are considerably increased. 
and I'd like to discuss transient synovitis along with septic arthritis just now. The reason for this discussion is that board questions love to compare and contrast septic arthritis against transient synovitis. Transient synovitis, as the name implies, is the inflammation, temporary inflammation of the synovial tissue. However, in contrast to septic arthritis, transient synovitis is not an infection. It's just an inflammation of the joint. And usually, uh, the transient synovitis follows the upper respiratory infection. Additionally, the child with transient synovitis doesn't look that bad. In other words, there will be pain and there might be some restriction in the joint movement, but there won't be severe pain, severe movement restriction, and uh, for example, causes the, the signs of the acute inflammation like redness and warmth and etc. At the same time, transient synovitis is usually not associated with leukocytosis and elevated ESR or CRP. ESR or CRP can be elevated because again, transient synovitis is an inflammation, but elevation will be minor compared to the elevation of septic arthritis. And since these two conditions are different from each other, they are also treated differently. Septic arthritis is a severe bacterial infection and it needs the joint aspiration at first, which will usually show more than 50,000 bacteria per um, cubic millimeter of the joint fluid. And septic arthritis needs antibiotics. If we suspect the MRSA, then we might give vancomycin uh, to the patient with septic arthritis. In contrast, transient synovitis does not need joint aspiration. We can perform the ultrasound, and ultrasound will show minor fluid accumulation in one or both joints, but the patient is not that acute and severe that we decide to do the joint aspiration. So what I'm trying to say is that there is no need to aspirate the joint fluid in transient synovitis. And the treatment is also supportive. So it's rest, ice, and the NSAIDs for most of the times. So this was comparison between septic arthritis and transient synovitis in infants. Let's talk about the shaken baby syndrome now. Shaken baby syndrome, as the name implies, is the traumatic injuries to the baby due to physical child abuse. This is when the caregiver shakes the baby violently in his or her hands. So you should imagine the person holding the baby with his or her hands and shaking the baby violently. Shaking the baby has several consequences. First of all, this can cause subdural hematoma. Before we explain the reason why shaken baby syndrome causes subdural hematoma, let me ask you a question. Could you please tell me which vessel is torn in case of subdural hematoma? I really hope that you're saying that the bridging veins are torn in subdural hematoma. The violent shaking of the baby puts a great tension on the bridging veins and this tension might cause the rupture of the bridging veins causing subdural hematoma. At the same time, violent, sh violent shaking of the baby causes rupture of the retinal vessels. And if we perform fundoscopy to the baby who suffers from shaken baby syndrome, we will see bilateral retinal hemorrhages. The last sign of shaken baby syndrome is posterior root fractures. So again, if we imagine the person holding the baby in his or her hands, then this strong grip 
of the adult hand on the baby's posterior ribs causes posterior rib fracture. So to summarize, shaken baby syndrome is characterized by three signs. First, subdural hematoma. Second, bilateral retinal hemorrhages. And third, posterior rib fractures. And let me remind you that any form of child abuse as well as elderly abuse in, and, and definitely shaken baby syndrome is reportable scenario. We should definitely report the caregiver in case of child or elderly abuse. Okay, and then the last topic of our today's episode is skiffy. Skiffy is slipped capital femoral epiphyses. Before we talk about the risk factors and clinical presentation, let me tell you what this disease is all about. First, let's think about the name, slipped capital femoral epiphyses. The name implies that the femoral head or the femoral epiphyses is slipped relative to the femoral neck. And in this case, sometimes the physicians compare this to the ice cream scoop of a cone. Cone in this case is the femur and the femoral neck and the ice cream scoop is the femoral head and epiphyses. The risk factors for slipped capital femoral epiphyses are obesity and adolescence. In other words, the classic patient with Skiffy is an adolescent obese patient, let's say an obese teenager who comes to the physician reporting the hip pain. Usually the patients have the hip pain and that makes sense because pathology affects the hip, but also they might have the knee pain. And this is a high yield point. Whenever the patient has knee pain, this patient does not necessarily have the problem in the knee because the hip pathologies can cause the referred pain to the knee. And this is the case in the context of the skiffy. Even though the real problem is in the hip, the pain can be referred to the ipsilateral knee. The gait will be altered. It will be ontalgic. In other words, the child, not child, but the teenager, will avoid the weight bearing on the affected leg. And the internal rotation of the hip will be also limited due to pain, mostly, and also due to the misalignment of the femoral head. How do we make diagnosis of the skiffy? Well, we should perform the femoral x-ray. And on the hip x-ray, we will see posteriorly displaced femoral head. In other words, the femoral head stays in the acetabulum while the femur, starting from the femoral neck, femoral neck is displaced slightly anteriorly. As for the treatment, Skiffy absolutely needs surgical intervention. Specifically, it needs surgical pinning. And we should also recommend the patient to restrict the weight bearing on that hip for some time. The reason Skiffy needs surgical intervention is that untreated or poorly treated slipped capital femoral epiphyses can cause further complications in life. And these complications include avascular necrosis and osteoarthritis. Avascular necrosis has a specific mechanism that I'd like to discuss with you. If you remember from anatomy, the retinacular arteries emerging from the medial circumflex femoral artery lie on the femoral neck and they supply, they go all the way up to the femoral head and they supply the femoral head. So if there is slippage of the femoral epiphyses, this might cause damage or tear to the retinacular arteries and that can cause a vascular necrosis of the femoral head. And then the joint damage and misalignment can 
result in osteophyte formation later in life, inducing osteoarthritis. We'll come to an end of our today's episode and let's summarize everything that we've discussed today. We have discussed multiple different topics across the pediatrics today. The main take-home message for practically all of these topics is to know how to diagnose these conditions and how to treat them. You can leave the voice message on this episode to let us know how we can improve our podcast for you. So thank you for your kind attentions, Ears, and see you on the next episode.